Okay, Deboki, tell our listeners what you are holding right now. So, Sam, I have in my hands a can of Polar 100% Natural Seltzer. It is my preferred seltzer, and it is my preferred flavor, which is ruby red grapefruit. It is apparently made with natural flavors, and it has no juice in it, no sweeteners, no sodium, but it is very, very tasty. Okay, so now I want you to crack it open. Take a sip and then describe to listeners what you're experiencing. Okay, so my first experience, because I poured it into a glass, was the feeling of like gas hitting my nose. I had it in the fridge, so it felt kind of cool. It has the sharpness of the bubbles. But also like with all of that is like that grapefruit. It's subtle. It's not overwhelming. It's not like having a grapefruit juice where you're just like overwhelmed with a fruit flavor or anything, but it's definitely there. Yeah, subtle, but there. Mm -hmm. What's so interesting about this, and the reason that I'm asking you to drink this grapefruit polar seltzer while we're recording is because there's something I want to talk about. So there is not grapefruit juice in there. There isn't a grapefruit syrup in there. So why does it taste like you are drinking something that has a splash of grapefruit? It's the odor. For a lot of seltzers, it's just odor molecules that you're picking up on. And that makes you think that you are drinking something with grapefruit or coconut or melon that's been added to it, when in fact, it is just aroma and fizzy water. Welcome to Tiny Matters. I'm Deboki Chakravarti, and I just had my mind blown by a seltzer fact. And I'm Sam Jones. And when I first learned that little factoid, it kind of felt like, well, duh, that totally makes sense. But also, what? I had absolutely no idea. The person who clued me into this was Stephanie Hunter, a postdoctoral fellow at Monell Chemical Senses Center in Philadelphia. So like seltzers, they use that aroma component to make it through our experience it makes it seem sweet then because we associate these fruity flavors with sweetness. So then you can just add in the aroma and it'll seem sweet to you. Taste, flavor, odor, perception, and a range of buzzwords are used to describe what we eat and drink. In this episode of Tiny Matters, we're going to break down what they mean and talk about how they relate to our health. You'll even get tips for making foods you don't like more appealing, plus a semi-healthy and surprising cake recipe. So yeah, stay tuned. As we often do on Tiny Matters, let's start with the basics. What is taste? Taste refers to the sensations of sweet, sour, salty, bitter, and umami. And we detect these when specific chemicals bind to the receptors in the taste buds, which are all in our mouth. A lot of times you'll hear flavor and taste used interchangeably, but flavor is actually the combination of input from three sensory systems, taste, olfaction or smell, and somatosensation. Somatosensation is a physiological process that allows you to detect things like texture, crunchiness or mushiness, for example, and it also includes a thing called chemisthesis. Chemisthesis is the detection of chemical compounds that cause feelings like tingling, burning, and cooling. 
For instance, the burning you feel when you eat a chili pepper or the cooling you get when you eat something minty. And actually, when you eat or drink something, it can get even more complicated because some of your tongue receptors, the proteins that stick off of cells that detect the sweet, salty, bitter, sour umami, those same receptors can be found in other parts of your body, including your stomach. I'm a coffee drinker, and one of the things that uh, happens with coffee and maybe overconsumption of coffee at times is you can get heartburn. That's Devin Peterson, a professor in the Department of Food Science and Technology at The Ohio State University and the director of the Flavor Research and Education Center, as well as the Foods for Health Initiative. And so what that's been linked to actually is bitter compounds in the coffee will trigger receptors in your stomach. It's not triggering bitterness in your stomach, but it trigger the gastric juices, right, that are in, in your stomach and results in more heartburn. How wild that the receptors on your tongue that help your brain detect bitterness also exist in your stomach, but send a very different message to your brain, which is, oof, heartburn. So for anyone who wants to dive deeper on that, they're called T2 receptors, and they're truly all over the place, even in your heart, where their exact role is not clear yet. I have nothing to add to that. I just thought it was really interesting. Okay, let's get back to flavor. If you're eating food and you remove taste, smell, or somatosensory input from the flavor equation, it dramatically changes the experience. And I think it's fair to say that smell is probably the variable we've heard about most over the last few years. There's a lot of people who have lost their sense of smell. It's actually not a new thing. We've been hearing it about it a lot lately because of the pandemic. But even before the pandemic, it was estimated that about 20% of the population had some type of smell disorder. So now there's just millions more people who have long-term smell disorders because of COVID-19. I'm doing a lot of work in people who have lost their sense of smell. They're missing that huge component of flavor and food isn't tasting as good anymore. We don't just eat for the healthfulness of the food. So we're eating for the flavor and we're eating foods with flavors that we like. So when that flavor is gone with smell loss, this lack of flavor perception really negatively impacts their quality of life. So I've gotten COVID a couple of times at this point, and I did lose my sense of smell one of those times. It was pretty terrible. It was like the food I was eating or stuff I was drinking had no flavor at all. And it was actually this really eerie thing when I first noticed it. I had made coffee like I do every day. I started drinking it and then I realized I could not smell it. Um, and so then I just started frantically walking around my kitchen, smelling everything. Nope, nothing. I knew it was particularly bad when I went to go pick up dog poop and I could not smell it, which I guess you could call a silver lining. That sounds so disorienting. Like, I feel like I wouldn't, I would be so confused. This sounds pretty miserable, except for the dog poop part. You know, food provides a lot of enjoyment in our life. And so you think about important events. We all gather for important events around food we enjoy. It's an important part of our, our culture and the human behavior. People generally eat what they like. And if you're going to set up dietary guidelines and say that, okay, these sort of food patterns are more idealized for health and wellness, you have to consider what we'll call the consumer traits. Consumer traits, meaning what consumers choose to buy and why. Stephanie actually clued us into something called the Food and Health Survey, where every year the results show that flavor is the number one driver of what foods people choose to buy. And that's been rated number one for the past decade. And it's rated higher than the healthfulness of the food, the convenience, the sustainability. 
So people find the flavor to be a lot more important in what they're going to buy and then consume compared to all these other factors. So it's really one of the primary drivers of food choice. So if you're trying to eat healthier, but you really don't like the taste of a lot of those foods, it's going to be a serious challenge. A lot of both Devin and Stephanie's work looks at how the flavor of foods could be improved so that people are more inclined to eat them. For instance, a recent study from Devin's lab looked at pea protein, and maybe you've seen pea protein powders at the supermarket. It's a pretty versatile source of protein that's both sustainable and nutritious and not likely to cause an allergic response like some milk-based protein products. We actually use it in my house because my husband's vegan, but the ones we get are pretty heavily flavored. And having that heavy flavoring is probably a good thing because pea protein isn't so great on its own. Not just in my humble opinion, but consumers generally are not fans. So to be able to make a product more enticing, knowing what's in it, what might be causing that pea soup smell, could be really helpful in leading to modifications that would make people more likely to use it. So Devin and his colleagues were able to identify 21 different pea protein aromas by using a combination of chemistry techniques like gas chromatography mass spec that let you separate out individual molecules by size and charge. Science is a lengthy process and making changes in a consumer product takes a lot of time. But it would be cool if some of that data ultimately helps lead to a new, improved pea protein of the future. But we don't all have hundreds of thousands of dollars of lab equipment to explore what aromas are in food that we find more or less appetizing. So what do we do if we want to expand our palates? For someone who would like to develop a taste for a certain food, you know, say they're trying to eat a bit healthier, they want to eat broccoli more because um, they know it's good for them. Where would be the place to start with that? Dipping it in cheese? <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> okay, seriously. You know, I, I tease you, but of course you see that in commercials. And one of the things that really will influence perception of foods is how you're going to cook them. So there's many ways to prepare foods and to uh, mix them with other ingredients and to cook them in different ways. You know, whether I'm going to microwave it, which is probably quite bland, or put it in an oven or saute it, right? Those are very different. And so frying or just sauteing even has a different temperature that these products are experiencing and, and actually generates different types of flavor compounds. You may be less like, you know, one preparation, you might be more inclined to, you know, enjoy another. You know, how you prepare these ingredients and how you mix them with, say, soups or, you know, other preparation methods can really help you to maybe find that sweet spot, so to speak, and, and allow you maybe to broaden that palate that is more idealized with your dietary goals. Deboki, is there a healthy food that you just cannot stand and now you think, maybe I'll try it uh, with or without cheese? I really, really hate the taste of papaya. Like, it is one of my least favorite foods of all time. <laughs> I don't know that I can, like, prepare papaya in a way that's different. Though I guess the closest thing is, like, I don't mind green papaya. So, like, maybe that's just what it is, is I can do a different form of it. Mm. Slowly, like, ease yourself in or not and just end up sticking with green papaya. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, just stick with the green papaya. And the, I mean, especially with papaya, it's like, I don't have to eat it. Like I can have other fruits, so I think I'm okay. Yeah, at least I'm, I'm okay with it for now. <laughs> Devin has a few more suggestions for us, but first, a quick break. 
we want to tell you about a cool podcast we think Tiny Matters listeners will be interested in. It's called The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week, and it's from Popular Science. If you enjoy interesting, informative, and most importantly, weird scientific discussions, like have you ever heard about the time a bunch of scientists tried to turn George Washington into a zombie, then you need to check out this podcast. The Popular Science team is a seasoned crew of science and technology journalists who are using their decades of experience to bring you the strangest scientific facts. Every episode, host Rachel Feltman and guest scientists like Bill Nye and Mary Roach break down weird but true facts about everything from the world's most illegal cheese to the real reason people are afraid of clowns. If you want to laugh and learn more about the science behind all the weird things that are happening around us every day, make sure to head over and subscribe to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. We've also put a link in the episode description. Okay, now back to the show. So Devin shared how the way you prepare a food, whether you saute it or bake it or do something else to it, could totally change the food's flavor and how much you like it. But he also had a few more suggestions for people who want to start incorporating different foods they don't typically like into their diets. I think you could also broaden where you get your ingredients. There are sometimes, for example, more heirloom tomatoes that are growing right in a farmer's market. And different varieties can have, a, you know, quite a bit of variation in their attributes. One you might like more and others you may like less. And so just to be aware of that, and, and I think that that can give you at least a little bit more flexibility. And I would also go back to that maybe, you know, putting them in, in more of a casseroles or other dishes, you may realize, like, for example, I'm a big fan of zucchini chocolate cake uh, and you would not huh. think those go together but that is a, a to me a great combination would you be open to this as a, a side note but would you be open to sharing that recipe with me because then i can actually put it in the episode description i would be happy to do so okay i didn't know if it was like a secret family recipe somewhere up the family tree but i don't know that anybody is is protecting you okay uh, you know, it doesn't sound like zucchini and chocolate go together, but they, they blend, right? Sometimes these combinations really create new sensations in ways that are just advantageous. Why do we sometimes change our minds about what we like? So for instance, I could not stand the taste of peanut butter as a little kid, but this morning I had a banana with peanut butter all over it for breakfast. I was happy to eat it. Yeah, so I'll give you another analogy. I was a very adversive to watermelon when I was young, uh, and now I am a, certainly a fan of watermelon and would seek it out. And so what that tells you is that part of what is our preference or things that we are driven towards to consume can change with experience. So aroma perception, particularly the aroma attributes of foods, I would call are more learned behaviors. And so your uh, exposure to different foods and different experiences is ever-changing in a way that starts to open up new opportunities for food consumption. And so as I start to get maybe different experiences to other fruits and melons, and then maybe brought in watermelon and I started consuming one and I, I started to learn to appreciate it. So if you are someone who has lost their sense of smell or it's diminished for whatever reason, you might be wondering what you can do to get back some of the enjoyment that comes with eating. Stephanie had a couple suggestions. A lot of times when people have a smell disorder, they'll rely on different strategies to help get some flavor back and to enjoy eating again. So we often hear people uh, focus on the texture of foods. So mushy foods aren't going to be as palatable to them anymore, but 
more crunchy foods will or more crispy foods will. A lot of people will also focus on enhancing the different tastes of the food in that absence of smell to try to enhance some of the flavor. One thing that we notice uh, when people uh, have a smell disorder is that they'll add a lot more salt onto their foods just to get some flavor and some feeling back. And if this is maintained with long-term smell loss, it could lead to other issues associated with excess salt intake. And as a population, 90% of us already consume more salt than is recommended. So one thing I'm looking at is seeing if we can use a type of sensory strategy to make food palatable, but without needing to add some of these components to foods that could harm health. So there's been some previous studies in people who have a normal sense of smell where they find that adding capsaicin, so that's spicy component of a chili pepper, can help enhance salt taste intensity without needing to add more salt. So the capsaicin and the odor from chili peppers can both enhance the salt taste intensity. So I wanted to see if this could also be some strategy that we could use in people with smell loss, if it's also useful for them to help enhance salt taste intensity. So Basically, what we did is just we recruited a bunch of people who had smell loss for 12 weeks or more. So they have long-term smell loss. And we gave them different soup samples. And we added um, three different levels of capsaicin to the soup. So there was none in it, or we added a low amount or a moderate amount. So then we had them sample these soups, and we had them rate how flavorful they were, how salty they were, how spicy they were, um, things like that. And we found that just adding a small amount of capsaicin, so it was perceived to be low, so it's not even outrageously spicy, can help enhance the salt taste intensity in these foods. And it also enhances the flavor perception. There's all these diets that people recommend, but a lot of times people don't adhere to them because they don't like them. So you kind of have to incorporate some type of sensory component to it to make sure that it's still palatable in order for people to adhere to it long-term. Understanding the delicate balance of a food's taste, smell, and somatosensation is not only helpful for eating more nutritious foods, it's also key to finding alternatives to compounds that aren't good for us and are a major part of the American diet, like processed sugar. There are probably other you know, ingredients that might create what we'll call mouthfeel or tactile cues that are similar to sugar and actually could then provide some sort of analogy to that sensation. It's not completely the same, but a way to fill in some of those missing pieces. It makes me think like, you know, people love soda. Could we somehow trick ourselves into being able to drink a fake Coca-Cola because of some sort of aroma compounds that are added mixed with a texture adaptation. And I don't know, I'm sure that that would be very difficult to do. You know, if you look at the industry and innovation of beverages for decades now, they've been trying to, you know, come up with a non-caloric product, and they certainly are out there. And some people are certainly well adapted to them and, and sort of meets their needs, so to speak. But it hasn't been the masses. I mean, there's still a lot of people that prefer the sugared product. And so part of the challenge there is that, one, sugar fills a very unique role in regards to perception and sweetness and even how it is perceived from a mouthfeel perspective. Uh, and it's hard to understand how do you do that without sugar. But there's also what's called this post-ingestive behavior. So when sugar hits your tongue, you can sense that it's sweet. But when it hits your stomach, it also activates something called wanting, where you're going to crave it and seek it out again. 
If you want to go on a sugar deep dive, we have an episode from last year all about sugar and its impact on our bodies and the debate surrounding if sugar is actually addictive. And I am, of course, biased, but I think it's a pretty fascinating episode. We'll link to it in this episode's description. After chatting with Devin and Stephanie, I feel like I have this newfound appreciation for how complex flavor is and how important it is for our health and how we might be able to kind of trick ourselves into trying new things by doing something as simple as sauteing or air frying or maybe even combining healthy things with less healthy things to generate new delicious flavors. I'm ready to make that chocolate zucchini cake. (laughs) For science. For science. For my stomach. (laughs) Tiny show and tell time. Yeah. I think I'm going first this time. Yes. Okay. So this isn't really heavily related, but I like now I'm rethinking my tiny show and tell in the context of what we've been talking about. Um, So what I want to talk about is a deep sea freezer that these geochemists at the Japan Agency for Marine Earth Science and Technology were working on or have worked on and they were testing it out. So basically the idea behind why you would want a deep sea freezer is that sometimes scientists want to study animals that live deep in the sea. But it's kind of hard to bring those animals up to surface. Like the blobfish that like we all know of as this like blobfish does not actually normally look like a blobfish. Apparently it looks like a normal fish in its normal habitat, but as it's being brought up to surface, it kind of just like, loses oh, its that form. that makes me so sad. I know. <laughs> it's so sad to think about. Like, I mean, it's so weird looking and cute I in a way, know. but you're kind of like, man, oh, we no. really, I want to see actually what I the I feel so fish. emotional about the blobfish now. <laughs> you can see the resemblance where you're like, oh, okay, it's kind of got this like weird triangular-ish like face. Like it looks kind of like a pyramidal oh sort of shape, but it becomes oh, no. the blob version of that once it's brought up to surface. Oh, that's sad. Okay. (laughs) Poor guy. Yeah. So scientists have like worked on these different tools to try to be able to bring animals up to surface that don't like turn them into blobs, like, you know, pressurized collection chambers, but it still takes hours to bring these animals up to surface. And sometimes like, especially for smaller and softer animals, like they might start degrading in that time. So one of the ideas was like, can we design a freezer that will help minimize that damage? So the scientists were able to create this freezer. It doesn't use liquid nitrogen or refrigerant to cool down. Instead, it uses something called the Peltier effect, which is basically a way to create a potential damage difference that then creates a temperature difference in the freezer. So it's super interesting. And they were able to demonstrate that it works. And the reason why I was just thinking about everything we were just saying is because they actually, for this article they, that I was reading about it, they used it to make this little frozen orange tree. They made it 850 meters below the surface with this uh, with this freezer. And so now I'm like, huh, I wonder if that changes the flavor profile at all. Oh my gosh, that's so interesting. So then the freezer is like hanging out in the deep sea, but then ultimately, once you have the samples that you want, you bring it back to surface, but then they're sort of protected. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Very cool. I hope for the blobfish that... <laughs> for blobfish, the sake of the blobfish. Not so, blobfish, not so blobby if you leave him where he's he likes yeah. to be. Yeah. <laughs> so mine also happens to be aquatic, but ancient aquatic... Really, I was just, I want to do this tiny show and tell because the images that I saw, I was completely blown away by. So researchers have discovered the fossilized vertebra and ribs from a 
about a 39 million year old whale. And they discovered these fossils in southern Peru. Okay, yeah, it's like, whatever, there's lots of whales. But this was probably the heaviest animal that has ever lived. (gasps) I felt was tiny show and tell worthy. Yeah. (laughs) So today the blue whale has that title. But for comparison, so this ancient whale skeleton, just the skeleton, was likely around 15,000 pounds. Um, But then based off of the 13 vertebra and ribs that they found, this whale could have weighed up to 750,000 pounds. What? Yeah, like just under that. I think they were saying the upper limit was something like 749,000 something pounds, which for context is, I think, three times the size of your average blue whale and is also somewhere around eight passenger jets or like 15 semi-trucks. So the image that really got me on this was just... It was just the vertebra, like just seeing one of them and three people around it. And it's like 200 something pounds for just a vertebra. And it's massive. It's I huge. Want to see this vertebra. Here, I'm sending you the, the link that I looked at. And if you just scroll down a little bit. Oh my God. That is huge. I know. That is one vertebra. That is one. Yeah. And there are 12 more. Yeah, that they found. And then they also (laughs) found, I guess, some ribs. Wow. You like build a home with those ribs probably. Well, it's pretty wild. Just conceptualizing how big a blue whale is, I think is kind of hard. But then just thinking about something that could be a few times bigger is unreal. I don't think I even realized that blue whales were that big. Like I I, I knew they were giant. I hadn't thought of them as that big. And so like, yeah, being like, oh my God, there was something even bigger than that. And also this illustration from this article of the whale is hysterical. Like it has this massive body that in the context of this illustration, it looks like it's like just like a fish in an aquarium almost because it's just so big relative to its surrounding in this illustration. And then it has these like tiny little limbs yeah. that you're like, do you, what do you do with those? Yeah, <laughs> I think truly probably very little. We could have a whole conversation about how you have these terrestrial mammals that then came back into the ocean. And that's why we have whales and other mammals that yeah. have lungs that live in the ocean. Um, and so, yeah, these are like, their appendages in this image. It's just hilarious because you're like, oh, "Oh, you haven't been on land in a long time. Yeah, Like it's been a while since since you guys were hanging out on land. Well, thank you. My Mm -hmm. mind has been blown again. (laughs) This episode, it started with seltzer and it's ending with whales. and massive whales. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We bring everything at Tiny Matters. (laughs) (laughs) All right, cool. Let's wrap this thing up. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Tiny Matters, a production of the American Chemical Society. This week's script was written by Sam, who is also our executive producer, and was edited by me and by Michael David. It was fact-checked by Michelle Boucher. The Tiny Matters theme and episode sound design are by Michael Simonelli and the Charts and Leisure team. Our artwork was created by Derek Bressler. Thanks so much to Stephanie Hunter and Devin Peterson for chatting with us. We've left a link to that chocolate zucchini cake recipe in the episode description. We've also left a link to our Tiny Matters coffee mug. So if you want to support the show and look really cool drinking your morning cup of coffee or tea or juice, I mean, you can even eat your chocolate zucchini cake out of it if you want. We've left a link for you. You can find me on social at Sam J Science. 
And you can find me at Okie Dokie Bokie. See you next time. <laughs>